Father in heaven, we thank thee, Lord, for your presence with us already this morning hour, which we heard from your life-giving word, the gospel, and the invitation to accept the gift that is so freely offered by thee, the living God, through Jesus Christ, your Son. Bless us now as we would once more look into your word for comfort, for strength, and that we may glorify your name in not only hearing it, but doing it and applying it to our lives. Open our hearts and help us to be willing recipients of your word and do as we pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. With the Lord's help, I'd like to turn. We've been studying uh, the book of Matthew, the Beatitudes. There's, this is such a rich chapter that we can uh, spend a long, long time on it. But some things that have come to my mind over the last few weeks, I'd like to also uh, share. And um, hopefully we won't spend a lot of time reading this time. But... Um, at least not from this chapter, because I'm only going to focus on really one or two verses. So the book of Matthew, chapter 5, Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, I'd like to read the first five verses. And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So this, um, while the choir is singing so beautifully this afternoon, I uh, started glancing at <clears throat> some scriptures in the Old Testament uh, which appear Jesus may have been alluding to when he was uh, preaching this sermon. And the word of God is given to us in both the Old and New Testaments, and they're all applicable. All scripture is given to us for doctrine and for our edification. And so... As you'll see, the only scriptures that the New Testament writers had to refer to when they were quoting was the Old Testament. And Paul was well, well known for that. If you read the book of Romans itself, it contained so many scriptures from the Old Testament. The situation was, just to recap and um, set the stage again, is that Jesus had just, if you look in the chapter beforehand, he had just gone through 40 days we talked about fasting and praying on last Wednesday's uh, topic at CFG uh, he just finished 40 days of praying and fasting tempted sorely by the devil three times sorely by the devil and then again three times at the end of his um, uh, life on earth in the garden he was tempted sorely so much that from his face, from his head, uh, poured down sweat, uh, mixed with blood, as it were great drops of blood. That's under how much duress he was in in that garden. But having been tempted uh, after his baptism, that's something uh, we need to remember too, 
having been tempted after his baptism in the Jordan by John the Baptist, he went and immediately he started preaching the gospel. Immediately he went and preached the gospel. John the Baptist preached, repent and be baptized. Jesus preached, repent and believe the gospel, the good news. And the more and more I read about in the New Testament, you know, we, we um, heard the choir sing just now, the song that, my first song that I ever learned how to play. My mum taught me, because it was done in, in the C key, is it, is it C key? Or the G, uh, G C key, anyway. And, and it was very easy to play, but I knew that. But the words were very haunting. Christ my King draws near in glory, which was his. This glory was his before time began. And then it talks about come to judgment, come to judgment. And then it talks about for the kingdom now has come. Very powerful words and in a very powerful song that the choir is singing now. But the more I look at the gospel beginning from you know, chapter 1 in, in the gospel of Matthew, the more I see that Jesus in his first descent to earth did not come to preach condemnation he came to preach salvation he said that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes on him should not perish but have everlasting life for he came not into the world to condemn the world. This, to me, that's just so precious and so beautiful. He didn't come for that purpose to condemn the world because he saw the world was in sin and, 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 he, and he sorrowed for them. He wept over mankind. He's not that judge that comes in glory the second time to claim his own and then to, be, then to judge the world but he came the first time to give the good news, that heartwarming news that you can be saved from your sin. And after he had <clears throat> um, preached the gospel throughout Syria, healing people, uh, casting out devils, healing the blind, it says that multitudes follow him. He, he, was, he was so popular. He had multitudes of people from all over the place following him around. And then he went from Nazareth, he went to live in Capernaum. That became his perhaps third home. Bethlehem, Nazareth, Capernaum. And he was there because that's where the disciples were, I believe. And Bethsaida, John and James and Philip and they were all from that area on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee <clears throat> and seeing the multitudes he went up into a mountain that's when he withdrew himself into a mountain <clears throat> and he it doesn't say that why we can speculate but having um, studied the, the, the revivals that occurred in America and in England it, it sort of makes sense now where George Whitfield would get up on top of a hill in a pulpit and John Wesley 
and they'd get up on top of a hill and the people could see him from far off. He could project his voice and he could have up to 20 to 30, 40,000 people listening to what he was saying and preaching and being very effective. So Jesus gets up onto this mountain somewhere north of Capernaum, north of Bethsaida, north of Galilee, the Sea of Galilee, and the people come to him and he's got this natural amphitheater where he's now opening his mouth, the scripture says. He opened his mouth. You know, the prophets opened their mouths. God told them to open their mouth and to preach the gospel. And many prophets, or some prophets at least, were reluctant to preach the gospel. Moses said, look, God, I cannot speak. And God said, who gave you your mouth? I gave you your mouth. I know you can speak. You know you can speak. And Jeremiah, I'm, a, I'm but a child. What can I do? And God says, you're going to pull down. You're going to pluck out. You're going to tell the people what they need to hear to get back on the track and follow God. And so Jesus opened his mouth. And when he was set, and again, that word set doesn't mean he was sitting down. When he was ready, he was, maybe he was standing up. We don't know. It just says, when he was set, his disciples came unto him, and I believe it means that they drew nearer to him. The whole multitudes, I believe, because at the end of the chapter and further down, you see, and talked about the multitudes, the people, they were still there. And so the disciples may have thought, I want to get closer to Jesus. And they came closer and they became his 12 that followed him around Palestine. And then when he opened his mouth, he taught them saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I remember in my early years as a preacher, Brother Gaber approached me and he says, Do you know what the Beatitude are talking about? They're talking about the steps to, to salvation, to conversion. That may be true. But in order to get there, in order to get there, in order to become what I think what Jesus is talking about, he's talking about these are the characteristics of a kingdom child. This is what a kingdom child should possess. But you have to get there. And so it's a combination of both. And these are full of blessings. Those that are kingdom children, subjects of the king, are blessed because of these things. But it's not that they become blessed. By being children of the king, they are blessed. And this is what they should be portraying. These are the attitudes that they should be having. These are the principles that they should be abiding by and living by and being ruled by. But as you'll see in here, there's a lot of um, seeming paradoxes, things that seem to speak against each other. It's a paradox. How can you be... How can you be uh, uh, poor in spirit and still benefit 
How can you be poor? If you look in the gospel, I was looking as Brother uh, Eric was preaching this morning in the gospel of Luke. I actually turned to the wrong chapter because it's on the other side, chapter 7 in my book. And I was looking, and he said, wow, he's talking about the parables again or the, the Beatitudes again. But there it doesn't say they are blessed in the, they are poor in spirit. It says they are poor. Blessed are the poor. There's no in spirit there. But I think the meaning is clear in Matthew 5. Because those that are poor in spirit can be poor. And many were poor. And those that were poor in spirit knew how to handle, they knew how to handle their, their poverty. But one would say, what's so blessed about being poor? That's the first thing that may come to your mind, to, to the natural mind. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Why, would, why wouldn't you want to be rich in spirit? Because Jesus was trying to make a, a big distinction here. And, and uh, the distinction is this. You can't be rich in spirit until you become poor in spirit. You can't be enriched by God or recognize your wealth until you become poor in spirit. This seems like a, you know, it says that Jesus became poor for our sakes that we could become rich. We have power in weakness, another paradox, right? How can you have power when you're in weakness? How can we become wise if we become foolish? These are all metaphors or, 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 or phrases that were given to us in the, Old Te in the New Testament by Jesus, by the apostles, and we need to know what that means. And for the longest time, I, we, we sort of struggle with the difference between being poor in spirit and being meek. We always say meekness means humility to some extent. Or meekness is power under control. Or meekness is knowing your place. Or meekness is gentleness. But we often think the first thing we think of is meekness means humility. You can't be meek if you're not humble. And that's why the, the, the structure of the Beatitudes is given, it's like a, a staircase that leads up to the temple of the kingdom of God. And the first step in that staircase, upon which everything else is built, is to be poor in spirit. It doesn't mean to be spiritually poor. There's difference. The whole world was spiritually poor at one stage. And by spiritually poor, it means we are void of the Spirit of God, of His grace, of His goodness, of His holiness, of His purity. We're void of all of that. And instead, when there's a void, there's a, something fills that void. And what is it? It's sin. In sin, our mother conceived us, David said of himself. In sin did my mother conceive me. As we heard this morning in Romans chapter 1, there's none righteous, no, not one. All of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. 
And this morning, Brother Eric mentioned about, you know, how did this woman become like that? Or how did she, I forget the exact wording that was used, that she could come to the point where she could come and, 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 and wipe the feet of Jesus and kiss his feet and, and dry them with her hair. Well, there's a first step. Obviously, she realized something. She realized that she was, in fact, a sinner. Because she realized that, in fact, Jesus Christ was just like Nicodemus said, you must have come from God because no man can do the things that you do unless God be with him. So being poor in spirit is exactly, if you parse it, if you take it step by step, being poor means being devoid of something, lacking something, abjectly lacking something. You have nothing of spiritual value that you can offer to God in order to be accepted by him, that God would say to you, that Christ would say to you, go in peace, your faith has saved you. Because if we come to God thinking that we have something of value, that I wasn't a bad kid after all, that I've done a lot of good things, why can't God accept me as I am? We are not spiritually poor. We think we are something. We think we have something we can contribute to the cross. What Jesus did on the cross is not enough. I have to do something else on top of that. It's faith plus works. It's faith plus my gift. It's faith plus my contribution. And in Christ said, if you come with that attitude to Christ, to God, you are not spiritually poor. Yours is not the kingdom of heaven. I think it's very important for us to realize that to be spiritually poor is the first step in all of our decisions that we make. In all of, even, even things that, that may seem somewhat secular, even decisions on this earth that I don't have to consult God because I know it. I, I have to make this decision because it's not a spiritual decision. God has given us life and life abundantly through his spirit. And the decisions that we need to make should be based upon his word, upon his principles, upon his laws, upon his commandments. And not to say, well, this is how the world does it. I've got to be smarter than the world. And I've got to take this step in achieving what I want to achieve in this world. And we completely bypass some of the vital um, commands and principles that God has given to us in his word. To be poor in spirit means that we can now see that we are sinners. That's the first step. The first step is that one that is poor in spirit has finally come to the position where he acknowledges that he is a sinner. Look at the uh, prodigal son. Came from a wealthy house, probably. His father gave him his wealth. He went and spent it with riotous living. His, his son, other sons said with harlots. And it could be true. He may not have been making this up. 
Jesus didn't say it, but it could be true that he spent it on rioters living in harlots and when his money ran out, then he was too ashamed. Too ashamed to go back to his father's house. Instead he went and he started feeding the pigs. He became spiritually poor but then he became poor in spirit. There's a big difference. When he sat down, when he realized what he had done, when the, the grace of God was still convicting his heart and convicting, and he remembered perhaps the things that his father taught him from the word of God, from the law. And then he realized what dad told me was right all along. And, and admitting that there's no other way. He said, look at what's back home. All my father's blessings, all the food, all the friends, all the benefits of being a son of my father. And look at me now. It was evident. He could have gone two ways. He could have said, no, I want to prove to my dad that I'm right. But he came rock bottom. He, there's no other way for him. He could have been stubborn. He could have been proud. But he didn't. He said, you know what? It's easier to admit that I am lost. I met a, a girl in, at, in, in Regina. And um, she, was, uh, she had a husband that was working as a truck driver in the States. They had a little, little child, and they had moved from San Diego to Regina, and they had come across the church in Regina there, and they, she started attending the services. She became a Marine. She went to Japan for four years. She, she, did, she traveled the world. She saw a lot of this world. And then I asked her, so what brings you here? And she said, you know, I've been going through life and I was losing my way. I was losing my way. Or I had lost my way. I can't remember which tense she said. She'd lost her way. So she came back to the Word of God. She came back to hear the Word of God. And the son realized he had lost his way. And it had to come to the point where he says, Father, I have nothing. I have nothing left. I'm coming back to you not as a son anymore. I'm coming back to you as a servant. I want to serve you now. I want to earn my keep. But take me back. Well, that's what Verse 3 says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. What did the father say? Get him the finest robe, put a ring on his finger, shot him with, with, with shoes, slay the fatted calf. My son was lost. He's found. He was dead. 
He's a lie. And the entrance to that, that temple of the kingdom of God, the first step is being poor in spirit, completely admitting that I've lost my way. I have nothing to offer anymore. As like the other person said in, in Luke chapter 16, I cannot dig and to beg, I'm ashamed. That's good. It's good that you came to the realization that it, you, you're ashamed to beg. You, you have no capacity to make your own way anymore with the, even your physical strength. And you depend on somebody outside of you. You see, being poor in spirit, this is, this is the key that, that, that I latched onto. I hope I'm right. Being poor in spirit is something that happens inside a person. Something that needs to be dealt with inside the individual. Has got nothing to do with anyone outside of him. It's something that happens inside. Because that's where the Holy Spirit works. The Holy Spirit convicts the heart. The Holy Spirit speaks to the heart. The Holy Spirit reminds you of the things that you used to know. That I used to know. We're talking about Steve Delich. He was the first one that, when I came, I mentioned this a couple of times, when I came from Australia as a 16-year-old going on 17 and I head down to my shoulders and I thought I was a cool sportsman. And he said, hey, Doug, let's go get a haircut. And I did. Because I knew, I promised God at the football games, you've heard this over and over, let my team win. And I'll serve you. I'll be, I'll be a Christian one day. I'm bargaining with God. Something like that. I said, God, now's my chance. You plucked me out. I have nowhere to go. I hate this country. I hate the weather. I hate everything else. But you told me, you, you brought me here. And that's when I thought, this is my clean break. And it wasn't because of my goodness, my wisdom, my abilities, I came here against my will somewhat. I wanted to see the family, but I didn't want to stay here. And thank God that Steve has come to that point now, 50, almost 50, 45, 50 years later, where he realized he's lost. He spent himself. Everything that he had, his youth, his money, whatever it is, it's gone. Maybe he's got some left, I don't know. But it's going to come to a point where you are spiritually bankrupt. Where you realize everything you do, or you, everything that you put into life just dissipates, just goes to waste, goes nowhere, has no purpose, has no investment. It says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs not will be, not shall be, not may be. It says, theirs is the kingdom of God, of heaven. When we become the children of the king, we belong to the children, 
to the kingdom of God. And we live. A, a, a beautiful verse I was looking for a few times before, but in our Zion's harp, you've got to read the, through the whole hymn to get the whole flavour. But it talks about the brightness of the Christian's own innermost living. This is a picture of the blessings of the kingdom. How bright is the Christian's own innermost living, although from without no beauty may show. This paradox. Rich gifts for their king, from their king, they are daily receiving an indwelling strength that no worldling may know. What no one revealeth and nobody feeleth Upon their enlightened minds, grace is bestowing, and in them a dignity godly is showing. Isn't this the, the blessedness that Jesus is speaking about? Verse 2, though outwardly they may seem poor and rejected, the joy of the angels, the scorn of the world, yet inwardly they are the glorious elected. Christ's jewel, his crown, his banner unfurled, the wonder of ages that he now engages to serve the great king who is star of the morning, who them with his righteousness true is adorning. He can only give us his righteousness when we realize that our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, when we realize that what I have to offer God is, is for the dunghill. And here's some for those that are suffering in pain and illness. Happens to all of us every, in different phases of our lives. Though outwardly they are in Adam as brothers who carry this likeness by nature indeed. They suffer the illness of flesh as all others. They eat and they drink as they daily have need. In each undertaking, in sleeping and waking, they do as all others Nothing neglecting, save that the world's folly they are rejecting. Being a kingdom child doesn't in any way exempt us from the infirmities of the flesh. Not even Jesus was spared that, being the Son of God. He, he was a high priest that was not untouched by the infirmities of our flesh, but was in every point tempted as we were yet without sin, Hebrews 4 says. Yet they inwardly are of God's generation, the offspring of God by his word, spirit-led, a spark and a flame from the Lord of creation. By Zion above they nurtured and fed, and high above others, the angels as brothers enjoy the sweet songs these God's children are singing that cause the high heavens with joy to be ringing. When we become God's children, the angels of God rejoice. They praise God for his grace. They praise God for his mercy. They praise God for his righteousness because he has bestowed upon us who were spiritually poor the blessings of the kingdom. Let me go to verse 5. I'm going to skip verse 4 for now because of time but 
It said, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So what is the difference between poor in spirit and being meek? Remember, being, poor in, being spiritually poor is something that we've got to deal with on the inside by becoming poor in spirit. It's an internal response. The heart changes. The heart acknowledges and realizes that we are nothing and we can see our sin because we humble ourselves and confess. That's what confess means, to agree with God that we are sinners and that we need repentance. But once we have become children of the kingdom, once we become his, his children, then we've need, we need to be meek. And what is meekness? I discovered that meekness has to do with not what's inside of us, dealing with what's inside of us, but rather how we respond to what comes from outside of us. How we respond to false accusations. How we respond to persecution and oppression. How we respond when people cheat us and, and abuse us and do all kinds of manner of things against us. How do we respond? We won't do it without being poor in spirit. It is, it is the foundation of meekness. But how we respond to those around about us, even when we have nothing to do with it, even when we aren't the antagonists, even though we don't cause the problem, yet they, it comes to us that we get in these situations. And it could be against people or it could be against events or or things that happen in our lives that can make us really feel bitter. We could really feel bitter and angry at God when things happen to us that, I didn't ask for this. I've been doing good. Why is this happening to me? God, do you love me? Do you really love me? You know, the question was asked in the book of Malachi where God says, you are asking me, wherein do I not love you? Tell me how I don't love you. They were accusing God of not loving him or them. Didn't I say, Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated? How do you say I don't love Jacob, Israel? And he told them all the things that he did for Israel. It was not that he didn't love Jacob, but that he, he loved him. And because he loved Jacob, he chastened Jacob, as it says in Hebrews chapter 12, for whom the Father loveth, them he chasteneth. Why? To bring them back, to bring them to awakening, to make them poor in spirit again. To humble themselves and say, yes, I did wrong, I disobeyed, I rebelled, I kicked. But meekness has to do with how we are treated. 
We could be wrongfully treated. Yes. This happens all the time. Our forebears were wrongfully treated, sent to jail because they didn't want to kill. They didn't want to kill their enemy because Jesus said, love your enemy. Or somebody said something bad about us, gossiped about us. slandered us betrayed by trust lied about me yelled at me how do we deal with that we demand justice may God be your reward How did Jesus deal with that? We got to, that's what we need to ask. How did Jesus deal with that? What would Jesus do? WWJD. How did Jesus do? He says, he was like a lamb or a sheep before his shearers. And he opened not his mouth, though he was reviled. He reviled not again. And he says in the Beatitudes, if they smite you on one cheek, give the other. If they compel you to take their bags one mile, take them two miles. Don't overcome evil with evil, but overcome evil with good. That's what Jesus would do. What else would he do? Forgive. Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. What he said in John 3, 16, 17 and 18, he said on the cross, I didn't come into the world to condemn them. But to save them. Father, forgive them, they're crucifying me. They don't know what they're doing. When they come to their senses, when they become poor in spirit, that's when they will... Acknowledge you. That's when they will repent of their sins and come back and become children of the kingdom. What happens to the children of the kingdom that are meek? They shall inherit the earth. And I always thought, mm, yeah, that's going to be in the future. That's a future kingdom. It's going to be down when we all die and we all go to heaven. Or when we all live on the restored earth. That's when we're going to inherit the earth. If you go to <clears throat> Psalm 37. I just read it while the choir was singing. Beautiful psalm. We all need to read. Because that talks all about the estate of the godly and of the wicked. Psalm 37 is a psalm of David. David prays for safety. He pleads with God to do him right. He's on the run. And he sees all kinds of evil and wickedness around him, including the king that was after his life, perhaps, in this chapter. 
Plead my cause, O Lord, with them that strive with me. Fight against them that fight against me. Take hold of a shield and buckler and stand up for my help. Draw out also the spear and stop the way against them that persecute me. Say unto my soul, I am thy salvation. Let them be confounded and put to shame that seek after my soul. Let them be turned back and brought to the confusion that divides my heart. Notice he gave that to God. And when he had an opportunity to get soul back, to spear him in the cave, he refused to do that. He said, I would not raise my hand on the Lord's anointed. I want to lift up my hand against the Lord's anointed. God told me he's my king. Whether he's a good king or a bad king, I'm going to honor him as my, as my king. For without cause, here we go, they have hid me for me their net in a pit which without cause they have digged for my soul. He's saying, God, you take care of this. Regardless of my feelings, you take care of this, and my soul shall be joyful in the Lord. It shall rejoice in his salvation. So that was 35, but the same thing, 37. Again, I looked at the wrong page. It says, fret not thyself because of evildoers, because of their envy against the workers of iniquity. For they shall soon be cut off, down like the grass, and wither the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. So shalt thou do in the land, and verily thou shalt be fed. Delight thyself also in the Lord, and he shall give thee the desires of thy heart. Commit thy way unto the Lord. Trust also in him, he shall bring it to pass. And he shall bring forth thy righteousness as the light, and the judgment as a new day. Rest in the Lord. And wait patiently for him. Fret not thyself because of evildoers, because who prosper in his way, because of the man who bringeth wicked devices to pass. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not thyself in any wise, for evildoers shall be cut off, but those that wait upon the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. That word, that phrase, inherit the earth, occurs about three times in this chapter. I'm not going to read it for the sake of time. But what is God saying to us also? When we become children of the kingdom, not only do we have a future kingdom stored for us, but we, while on this earth, can still have victory and power and rule with Christ in his kingdom on this earth. This earth is ours. It's our sphere while we are alive to not let the enemy, though they oppress us and persecute us, like the Apostle Paul, though he was beaten and stoned, he got up again and kept going and kept going and kept going and his life until his life was taken from him. There's a very interesting verse in Timothy, along these lines. 1 Timothy chapter 4. For bodily exercises profiteth little, but godliness is profitable unto all things, having promise of the life that now is. 
that now is and of that which is to come. Because we have enemies on this earth, because we have those that, that fight against us, it doesn't mean we cannot still inherit the earth with Christ as our captain. And when Paul was in prison and under duress and, and perhaps torture, he was still converting people to Christ. And perhaps in a very, I wouldn't say boastful way, but in, to let the people know, it says, and give greetings especially to those that are of Herod's household or Caesar's household. Give greetings to those that were converted when, when I was in prison. Because they converted too. They gave their life over to Jesus Christ. Verse 5 of this hymn that we read earlier, 50, 58 in the Zion Sharp. It says, as pilgrims they journey, their home is in heaven. Without any strength, they protect the whole earth. Is a paradox. The home is in heaven, but being powerless, they protect the whole earth. And how did Jesus say it's going to happen? You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. They share the true peace, though the world is war-riven. Isn't that true? They are the most poor, yet they never have dearth. They never lack. They stand here in sorrow, yet joy in yon morrow. They seem to have died to their weak outer senses, directing their life through the faith God dispenses. The word of God never ceases to amaze me. The, the, the more you study, the more you look into the Word of God, the more you are <clears throat> exposed to His truths, and the more you realize that the paradoxes aren't paradoxes at all. It's the life of the kingdom. And the flesh always warred against the Spirit. <coughs> <coughs> My dear ones, especially the friends, when you feel that life is cruel, people are cruel, this world is cruel, why did God create it this way? Why am I here? If we were to ask, would you want to be a child of the kingdom, to live in glory, to live in absolute bliss and peace, eternally to have feelings of exhilaration and fulfillment forever and ever and ever what would your answer be of course but what would your answer be is in order to do that you've got to become poor in order to do that you've got to be meek in order to do that, you need to be pure in heart. In order to do that, you need to be a peacemaker. You need to mourn. You need to be willing 
to be subject to the king of the kingdom. This is my prayer for myself first, and my prayer to all, to him be the glory evermore. Amen. The Bible says that the ways of God are much higher than the ways and the thoughts of man as far as the heavens are above the earth. What may seem foolishness to man as it was to the Corinthians, foolishness, the gospel to them that perish is foolishness, Paul writes. And the Jews are looking for a sign as if Jesus never gave them signs. But it's always been like that you know, throughout history. As Paul says, God has chosen the, the, the base things of this world, the weak things of this world, to confound the wise, the mighty, the strong. And Paul had to realize that when I am weak, then I am strong. He had every reason to be bitter about the physical ailments he was suffering, and he prayed God three times that God would deliver him from this, yet God says, my grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. When we are weak, then we are strong. And I pray that every one of us will become weak so that God's power and strength may reign and rule through us. To him be the glory evermore. Amen. This concludes our service.